So in Mark 10, verse 17, a man comes to Jesus and asks this question. Perhaps you've uh, heard the idea there's uh, no such thing as a bad question. And that's true. There's no reason not to ask a question. If you're needing information, if you're needing knowledge, especially when it comes to faith and salvation, it's always good to ask questions. But here we have a question from a man that needs to come under uh, some scrutiny. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His question indicates to us both his knowledge as well as his lack of knowledge. One bit of knowledge that he was lacking was the first thing that Jesus taught him, namely that no one is truly good except God alone. The man had addressed Jesus, uh, much as Nicodemus did, uh, very respectfully. Uh, He had called him not only teacher, but good teacher. And it may seem that Jesus' quick response, if it was quick, it seems like it was, but that his response was an an exercise in uh, exactness or pickiness. After all, the man may just have been trying to be polite, but part of the answer to the man's own question was to teach him that, indeed, no one is good except God alone. So the next thing that the man needed to learn was that God requires, God demands obedience to the whole law. In other words, God does not find a man good when that man obeys nine out of ten commandments. God does not find a man good when he obeys 51% of the law, nor even when he obeys 99% of the time. Jesus makes this all very clear by giving a, a short list, we might call it, of the commandments, as if the man might actually be able to claim perfect obedience. But then by following up with the one commandment, did you notice which one was missing? The one commandment that the man was clearly breaking. He was a covetous man, a man who loved his money more than God, a man who, in the end, would not repent of his sin. And that brings us to a third thing that the man needed to learn, namely the impossibility of earning eternal life. Not only is it the case that this man would not repent of his sin, but it can also be said by way of the teaching of Jesus that not only would he not, but he could not repent of his sin. Jesus goes on to say, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And exactly how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus makes it abundantly clear, with man it is impossible. Even for the rich man, even for the man who who has every advantage working for him, it remains impossible. Because he was rich, he didn't have to work and to face the, the daily temptations of the business world like many of you do. Because he was rich, he had more time to study the scriptures and, and, and he could afford to sit under <clears throat> to sit under the instruction of the best teachers available. The disciples understood that if a rich man could not be good enough, to enter the kingdom of God, then no one could enter. Who then can be saved? They asked Jesus, and Jesus proclaims to them the good news. Yes, the law, yes, conviction, but also the good news that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So here is a story and a, and a conversation within the ministry of our Lord that teaches us how fully the sinner depends upon God for salvation. Here is a passage of scripture that teaches salvation by grace and even more salvation by a most glorious grace. This question from the disciples shows that they had come to realize how, how deep and utterly dark is the despair of sin. Given that only God is good, given that human beings must also be good to dwell with God in eternity, and given that no one, no matter how hard they try, no one is able to be good, given all of this, Salvation is possible, but only as God abounds with grace toward the sinner. So there is much that the man needed to learn and that we as well need to learn, but his question also reveals that he understood at least one thing. And this is a first point for us this morning, that salvation comes as an inheritance. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He asked Jesus. His question calls to mind how Scripture refers so often to the inheritance of God for his people. Let me just give you a quick, non-comprehensive survey of references. In, In Exodus 32, verse 13, in Exodus 32, Verse 13, Moses is praying to God and and he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Here is one of the first places in Scripture where God's blessing to his people is spoken of as 
and inheritance. We'll jump to the Psalms for one of the many references there to God's salvation as an inheritance in, in Psalm 25, verses 12 and 13. Psalm 25, verses 12 and 13, it says, Who then is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. Unless we think that this is uh, simply an Old Testament thing, uh, we can... uh, We can note Ephesians 1, verse 14. Ephesians 1, verse 14, where it says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Again, in 1 Peter 1 verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter 1 verses 4 and 5. There it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection from the dead and into an inheritance. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you. So what we see in all these passages is that God's blessing of salvation is given to his people as an inheritance so that this man comes to Jesus to ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But even as this man uses such terminology, his question continues to reveal his misunderstanding, because if you will think about this with me, isn't an inheritance, by definition, something that you gain apart from having to do anything? There is a contradiction built right into the man's question, because there is obviously nothing that you have to do to gain an inheritance. It's yours by birth. In fact, there is finally nothing you can do to gain an inheritance, because an inheritance always goes to the children who are born to receive that inheritance apart from their choosing, apart from anything they do. So can we see the the problem in the the man's question? His question is a, a contradiction in terms because an inheritance is something that is uh, yours by way of your birth. And your birth is not something that you had any role in. Your birth is completely about something that happens to you and never a matter of something that you do or did. This is exactly why God always refers to his blessing of salvation as an inheritance. By calling the, the promised land the inheritance of his people, He was reminding them 
that they were receiving the land by grace. They had become his people and were receiving his blessing, not by their own doing, but by God's doing, as he promised the land to their father Abraham and to his descendants long before they were even born. Here is your inheritance, said God to his people as they entered the promised land. Here is the blessing of salvation from your enemies. And it, and it comes to you not because of anything you have done, but only by way of your birth. Only as you are descendants of the man to whom I promised to give this land. But what does it mean that even our salvation by the new covenant in, in Christ's blood, what does it mean that, that even our salvation is an inheritance? It means that we are saved by grace and not because of what we have done, not because of how well we have obeyed the law. Let's ask the question now from this side of salvation we might put it that way. This, this man who came to Jesus was seeking after eternal life. Good for him. But for those who have eternal life as their possession through Jesus, Jesus Christ, the question is this, what have we done? What have we done to inherit eternal life? And the same problem exists for this question. We haven't done anything to inherit eternal life. Because if we had done something to gain it, our salvation wouldn't be an inheritance, as Scripture clearly says it is. Because an inheritance is not something you gain by doing something. An inheritance, rather, is something that becomes yours by way of your birth. So our salvation, too, as is an inheritance because we have been born again into the family of God. Here is the second point for us, that there is need to be born again. In order for sinners to receive an inheritance of eternal life, there is need to be born again. The teaching of God's word is that salvation is by faith and not by works. In other words, the teaching of Scripture is that sinners are saved only as they repent of trying to earn salvation and as they rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But even further, the teaching of God's Word is that even faith, even the willingness to quit working and to rest in Jesus Christ is beyond the sinner. Faith is not of us. We have no capacity in ourselves for faith. So if we are to be saved by coming in faith to Jesus Christ, then we must be born again. Jesus really meant it when he told his disciples, with man this is impossible. But not with God, all things are possible with God. And, and this is essentially the same teaching that Jesus gave to Nicodemus in John 3. With Nicodemus, we have another man coming to Jesus, 
apparently very earnest in his in his approach. We don't want to fault him any more than we need to, any more than the text would lead us to. He comes very respectfully in how he addresses Jesus. In verse 2 of John 3, uh, Nicodemus says, uh, Rabbi, that's respectful. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And once again, it would seem, we, we hear a rather abrupt response from Jesus. I tell you the truth, truly, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So instead of eternal life, Nicodemus makes a a kind of veiled inquiry into the kingdom of God. And Jesus' response is to talk again about what man in himself is unable to do. Namely, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The same expression can also be translated born from above. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. And that fits very well with the further teaching of Jesus in in verse 5. I tell you the truth. Again, truly, truly, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And again in verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You must be born again, says Jesus. And Nicodemus is, is right to ask, well, how, how can a man be born when he's already born? How can a man be born when he is old? It's a little sordid what he says next. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus was recognizing, however, exactly what Jesus was saying. That seeing the kingdom of God, which is to say entering the kingdom of of God, is not something that man can do on his own. But Jesus wasn't suggesting that, that Nicodemus should somehow get himself born again. Instead, Jesus was simply making the point that the sinner needs to be born again. The sinner needs more than some help. He needs more than even a whole lot of help. In, instead, nothing short of, of a new life breathed into him by God will bring him to saving faith in Jesus Christ that he might enter the kingdom of God. Apart from the Spirit, he is dead in sin and he needs to be born again by the Spirit or born from above. The heart of sin is... a uh, is a lump of, kind of gross, but the heart of sin is a lump of dead, rotting flesh within the sinner's chest. And it must be resurrected to new life if that heart would come to faith in Jesus Christ. So as a third point, the question remains, well, what is left then for us to do? 
And the answer depends upon where we are in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who have come in true faith to Jesus Christ need to acknowledge that they, this is what they need to do. They need to acknowledge that they have been born again and that this, this new birth, this resurrection of their hearts is no more to their credit than, than was their physical birth. Do, parent, do parents thank their children for being born? Of course not. And so we must humble ourselves as believers and recognize that, that God's grace to us in Christ is a most gracious grace. It is an, it is an abounding grace. It's not a grace that we partner with in any way. It's a grace, rather, by which God regenerates resurrects our hearts unto saving faith in Jesus Christ. It is not the case that we were drowning in sin and that God threw us a lifeline so that we could pull ourselves in. In other words, God does not help those who help themselves. It is not the case that we were drowning in sin and reaching out to God so that while he pulled us up, we pulled ourselves to him at the same time. In other words, we do not do our best and let God do the rest. It is the case, rather, that we were drowning in the flood of his judgment, that our hearts were such that we would have preferred to drown than to be saved by the God we despise. But that God was gracious to give us a, a new heart so that we would cry out to him and rest by faith in his hand as he lifted us to safety in Jesus Christ. The clear call of God in Scripture is for the believer in Jesus Christ to confess his or her full dependence upon God for his grace. Someone might say, but I, 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 I want to contribute to my salvation, uh, uh, and, and this teaching leaves me no hope of contributing. Exactly so. Because all glory must go to God for his grace. Someone might say, but this teaching leaves me no dignity. It humiliates me. Yet should we mistake dignity with pride so that we feel humiliated rather than humbled by grace. And someone else might say, uh, but I don't deserve it, so how can I accept it? Will you accept it by knowing how much you need the grace of God, and how dreadful the thought of not accepting it. But what about those who have not yet received Christ? Is it not counterproductive for those outside of Christ to be told that they have no capacity for faith? What benefit is there in knowing that you must be born again when you have no control over being born again? What hope is there when salvation is so completely impossible? And is that not what Jesus teaches here? With man, it is impossible. 
Well, the benefit, the hope, is that those outside of Christ will see how dreadful is their place in sin and that they will exhibit the first signs of new life by crying out to God to save them. And I pray that you will do that this this evening. That you will not turn away and not be turned away by this diagnosis of your place, of your condition in sin. I pray that you will understand how pointless it is to wait for a more convenient day because you will be no more able to repent and believe tomorrow than you are today. You must be born again. God must give you a new heart. And is he perhaps giving you that new heart even tonight? May God be pleased to give you a new heart tonight. Because salvation is the inheritance that God gives to those who are born into his family by his gracious power and his gracious will. Amen. Let's pray. O God, there is only death and rebellion in our hearts apart from your sovereign, saving grace. Grant, we pray, new life and submission to each sinner here tonight to receive Christ in faith. Give each of us to tremble as we come to understand how helpless we are to save ourselves. How helpless even to cry out in faith to be saved. But in that utter despair, let faith be born. Let faith come. Grant faith as we are given to seek your mercy in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.